Written by Peter White. Read by Duncan McGoughlin. Episode 4. Chapter 12. Read all about it. The village shop had opened at 6am as usual. Margaret, the shop owner, was very punctual. You know, a stickler. There was a sign in the shop above the cigarette cabinet that read, To be ten minutes early is to be on time. To be on time is to be ten minutes late. To be late is completely unacceptable. Do your duty. Do it well. Newspapers were all bagged up for the children ready to deliver on their paper rounds. Floors swept, windows cleaned, and even the cans on the shelves had their labels front and centre. She had arrived at the shop front at 5.15am that Monday morning in the glow of the yellow street lamp above her shop. She didn't know why, but she knew something was off. Felt it in her bones, you might say. The postman had been and gone as usual. She knew that, as she always left a little bit of a mess as he dragged the mail sack out of the old post box. I'll deal with that, she thought. But there was something else. The post box was covered in a light layer of dust, so she instinctively took an old handkerchief out of her pocket and started to clean the dust away. But as she reached the slot, she saw at the corner there was a single black cotton thread caught on a paint chip, with its end floating in the air, wistfully. She looked round to see if there was anyone else around, but, as usual, the village still slept. She gently pulled on the black thread, and felt whatever was attached rise towards the slot, and it was almost at the top. She reached in with her free hand to retrieve the object. It was a birthday card in a pink envelope. Fair child! she said with recognition, after reading the front. He can't even post a letter properly, she said in disgust. Being of a slightly vindictive nature, instead of just posting it again, she took the letter into the shop, placing it behind the till in full view. She had been on her own for over ten years now, since her last husband walked out on her. Since then, she decided that she would be better off alone. In a world out of control, at least the shop would stand to bring some order to all this chaos. As it was Monday, she knew that Andrew Fairchild would be in at some point later, and that she could tease a reaction out of him with it then. She smiled. Although not too much. It was far too early for that. Chapter 13. Wrongs for Rights William woke up at 9am to a busy Monday morning in the village. There were tractors charging up and down the hill, towing all sorts of different farming machinery. Courier vans and deliveries of all sorts happening around the village. Such a difference from the sleepy Sunday they'd just had. Back at the house, everyone had finished their breakfast and was sorting things out for the day ahead. William planned to stay behind and read while they all went to the hospital to collect Grampy. Granny was so pleased he was allowed to come home. They set off from the house at 11am, and William sat in the garden at the side of the house that overlooked the drive. He waved from behind his book as they drove off. That part of the garden also provided a good viewpoint for Jessie's house opposite, 
Not like that matters or anything. Just then, as if by magic, she walked out of her front door and waved at him as she walked down her driveway towards the road. Weren't you at work? he shouted cheekily. Those invoices won't write themselves. Why are you reading that crap? she said. Anyway, I don't work on Mondays. Go to the shop. Need anything? Hold on, I'll come too, he said, leaving his book behind the chair. They walked down the hill towards the shop, chatting along the way about various things. His plan to move to London after uni. Her plan to maybe start her own business importing festival wear from Nepal. It was nice to see the shop open for a change, and he could really use a cold drink. He liked tea, but not in the quantity his granny liked to make it. He opened the shop door and held it open for Jess, saying, After you, practising his country manners. Well, thank you, she said, as she walked past him and into the shop. No, 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 you really are welcome, he teased, and stuck his tongue out. She giggled. Just making her laugh made William feel like it achieved something for a change, and that everything was going to be all right after all. He went over to the drinks fridge and pulled out a freezing cold bottle of lemonade. Two for two pounds. Want one? he asked. OK, thanks, she said, picking up some crisps. He picked up a second bottle and headed over to the counter to pay. Will that be all? Margaret the shopkeeper said as she beeped the bottles with a scanner. Just a bag, please, he said. Not a problem. She ducked down briefly behind the counter to get one, and as she did so, William saw the pink envelope with Grampy's writing on it, propped up against the shelf. Oh my God, that's Aunt Cherry's birthday card. Margaret was back up with the bag, obscuring his view of the card. Before he knew it, he had paid, his drinks were in the bag, and she was now serving Jess. He stood near the door with his head and heart racing. How did the card get there? Did it fall out? Did someone try to steal it? He had to do something. He needed a plan. He and Jess walked out of the shop, and she knew something was up. William explained what had happened about the card not getting posted. She just said, Just explain. Just, just say that you're your grandson. She'll probably give it to you. I can't take the chance of her not believing me. She doesn't know me for madam. William knew he had to find a way to get it back without her knowing. I've got an idea, said Jess. She sometimes shuts the shop briefly when she gets a delivery. If I go around the back and ring the bell, she will lock the door, turn the sign and be gone for a minute or two. But that means I'll need to be in the shop before she locks it, said William as he questioned her plan. That's right. You will, said Jess, looking determined. There were already four or five people in the shop at this time. William walked back in just as a man walked out and headed straight over to the magazine rack towards the back of the shop. He had to find somewhere to hide before Jess rang the back doorbell. Anywhere. There was a thin but tall cupboard by the pet food. So he tiptoed over, keeping his head down, opened the cupboard and slipped inside sideways. William had to straddle a bucket and felt far too close to all the cleaning products on the small shelf in front of him. Just in time. Everybody out! Everybody out! Margaret screamed. Must be Anderson's, she said to herself. She looked around but couldn't see anyone left in the shop. Jess had rung the bell again. Coming, she said, whilst forcing the last customer out, shutting the door and sliding a large bolt lock shut. She turned the sign to closed and walked briskly towards the back door. William opened the cupboard slowly, stepped out as quickly and quietly as he could, snuck over to the counter and grabbed the birthday card, noticing the bolt lock on the shop door. 
Bloody knock-down gingers, said Margaret from the corridor at the back of the shop. I'm running out of time, he thought, with a panic. He got himself back into the tall, thin cupboard just as Margaret returned to the main shop area and placed the poor card back in his belt under his shirt again. Well, I'll be bringing this up at the village committee meeting on Thursday. Heads will roll, you can count on that, said Margaret, pointing towards the back door. William was starting to see why his grampy hated her. She opened the shop up again, and William heard quite a few people with loud voices walk in. After a minute, he opened the door and stepped out of the cupboard slowly. But in his peripheral vision, he saw someone looking at him. It was one of the customers, a middle-aged man reading a copy of What Parsnip? So he improvised. He picked up a cloth and cleaned a few shells with it and carried it towards the back of the shop. The customer lost interest. He made it down the corridor to the back door and left the shop with just a click of the latch. Jess was hiding behind a bush and jumped out when William was near enough for her to see it was him. Did you get it? she asked. Yeah, touch and go for a minute. Nice cloth. So, um, what now? Will you post the card again, or what? she asked. I can't. It has to get there today, he explained, throwing the stolen cleaning cloth into a bin. No point in getting a courier now, it's too late. And it would be really expensive anyway. You might as well bloody take it there yourself, she said jokingly. And that's when it dawned on him. He was going to London. Chapter 14 One Giant Leap Jess had very kindly offered to take him to the station, six miles away. He had run up to the house to grab some things and left a note on the kitchen table. Gone out for the day, back later, William X. As he left the house, Jess was already moving down her drive in a really old yellow VW Beetle with one hudcap missing and rust all around the edges of the bonnet lid. Nice car, William said as he hopped in. It's a rust bucket, but it drives well. And it's saving you bacon, she said defensively. Yeah, is it yours? he asked, trying to be heard over the sound of the engine as they were going up a hill. No, it's my mum's. My dad bought it for her on their first wedding anniversary. She had a health scare last year and now walks everywhere. And she lets you borrow it, he asked as they levelled off. Well, not quite, but this is an emergency. Besides, I couldn't take the chance of her saying no, she said with a wink. My God, she's gorgeous, he thought. What about your dad? Where's he? William asked. Oh, he, he died a couple of years ago now, she said quietly. Oh no, that's awful, he said, just like everyone probably said, when they didn't know what else to say. William thought to himself in the awkward silence, when anybody dies, it's always sad for someone, right? And it seems like when quite an old person dies, people don't feel the sting as much. They say things like, how old were they? Oh, 86, good innings then. Or, oh, bless. Well, we all have to die of something, right? What a life they must have had, eh? The truth is, when a girl loses her dad at 18, and he wasn't even 50, there aren't snappy phrases for that kind of loss. There are no words at all, really. Every time her mum gets a bad cold, she wonders, is this it? Is it happening again? And with every achievement, every defeat, birthday, engagement, Christmas and wedding, there would be a little part of her mind that her dad still occupied that wouldn't let herself enjoy the moment, fearing the sting of his absence. That is what true loss can do. Jess was a bit quiet for the rest of the journey, and William gathered why. They pulled into the station around 1pm, and she dropped him off 
quite close to the ticket machine. Thank you, you are a star, said William. The silent, pregnant pause was quite uncomfortable, but she looked at him. You okay? he asked softly. She didn't say a word, just leant across towards him. Whoa, this is it, we are going to kiss. She smells lovely. Only her head went past his, and her hand reached out and opened the passenger door by the latch, pushing the door open a bit. There's a bit of a neck to it, she said, killing the mood. See you later. Stay safe. Here's my number, just in case you need picking up. She held out a business card. He read the card as she drove away, grinding gears back towards Amblefield. Jessica Loudwater, Office Administrator, Odd Bods Dairy Farm, 07. Just then, he heard the horn of a train starting to pull around the bend and slow down into the station. It was his. He fought with the touchscreen terminal a bit before finding the button that said, Houston, day return. He tapped his card, collected his ticket and ran towards the platform. William jiggled down the stairs, ran up the platform towards the train and jumped on the first carriage he reached, just as the doors beeped and closed. Made it. Phew. There weren't many people on the carriage, and most people were either reading or listening to something on their headphones. Nobody ever talks on British trains. He always found that strange. As the train pulled out of Amblefield, he wondered if he was making the right decision. How crucial is this card? He took out his phone charger cable from his coat and made good use of the USB outlet near his seat. They even had Wi-Fi, much nicer than the trains he used back home. He then decided to do some research. He took his aunt's address from the card and typed it into his map app. It zoomed into a street in Whitechapel and he saw the closest tube was Allgate East. Next search was how to get there from Euston. He saw a map of the London Underground and had a complete meltdown. My God, how do people use this spaghetti? I can't even see Euston, let alone Allgate East. A guy in his forties sat opposite him, must have felt sorry for him, as he put his book down to say, Don't worry, mate, you get used to it. Southbound or Northern Line, via Bank, change at Moorgate, Hammersmith and City Line, two stops east, he said in a thick London accent. It was only then that William saw the little pin on his blazer, which was the London Underground logo. The man sitting to his left had one too, and in much to William's horror, it had a small black stone set into the base of it. Thank you very much, he said, trying not to give his nerves away. I'll write that down now, he added, as he got a small pad and pen out of his jacket. As he did so, his wallet slipped onto the floor, face up. His ID was on show. The man with a black stone leant forward and picked up his wallet for him and said, Fairchild, William Fairchild, well, that's good to know. Was Grampy's story true? Was there really a network of these nasty people in London that did horrible things? He looked just like a normal guy reading a book. Grampy's words swam in his head. From the politician to the butcher, from a banker to the police, fire service and even scribe. Maybe he had it all wrong, and the little black stone meant something else, like a manager or something. But something told him in his gut to run. He thanked them. He unplugged his phone, stood up, and walked towards the front of the train, pretending to look for the toilet. Once he had moved up a few carriages, he found an empty table and sat down, facing the direction he had come from, just in case he was followed. He watched and waited a while. Once he felt safer, he decided to carry on searching online. He looked into safety deposit boxes at Cuthbert's bank specifically, 
It took a while, but finally he found a forum where a guy was complaining that the access code was only five digits and didn't feel it was secure enough. Hang on, he thought. Five? I thought it was four. He looked at his photos of the card again and saw this, something to reflect upon. Face plus hide. He had completely missed it last time. It was a calculation. William was quite bad at maths, but even he knew that. So H-I-D-E was 8945. He drew out the first nine letters of the alphabet again. F equals 6, A equals 1, C equals 3, E equals 5. Face plus hide was 6135 plus 8945. He needed his calculator for this one. He typed the calculation in and got 15080. Five digits. That's interesting. Shane will never get to see if I was right this time. Just then, an announcement came over the speakers. The next station will be London Euston, where this train terminates. That was fast. It was almost there. Chapter 15 London Tan. The train started to slow down as it entered the covered area of the station. It was almost 2.30pm, but the sun didn't seem to shine as bright in the city and brief showers of rain were quite common at any time of year. The yellow light that lit the covered area gave everything a different hue, making the reds appear brown and the blues greener. So this is London, William said. Not that anybody listened. Nobody listening would be the recurring theme for the next hour at least. The train came to a gentle, shimmying stop, and most of the passengers were waiting by the doors, willing them to open like greyhounds in a starting box. The person nearest the door is silently entrusted with the responsibility of hitting the open button as soon as it becomes illuminated. Any longer than 0.001 seconds reaction time would be deemed a failure in their eyes, and would invoke a wave of tuts amongst the pack. The door bleeped, opened, and they were off. 300-plus people stepped out of the train carriages and onto the platform all at the same time, like a river had just burst its banks and was heading towards the dam at the bottom. The staff were quite used to this carnage, as it happened all the time. William was swept up to the automated barriers in the deluge and saw people tapping their phones and cards on the yellow discs to open them, squeezing through the gates which immediately slammed behind them aggressively. William wondered if wars were like this. Were there people like him, who didn't really want to run at the opposing army forces, but didn't really have a choice? Luckily, he had already had his ticket in his hand, as he would never have been able to get it out of his pocket in this vice grip of people. Before he knew it, he was at the front. He put the ticket in the slot of the barrier, and it appeared again at the top. The gate didn't open. He felt a surge of pressure rise and fall behind him. Upside down, said the man next to him, who was being swallowed by a huge man's armpit. The wave of tuts dissipating through the crowd to the back was quite unsettling. William tried again with the ticket the other way up. The ticket appeared above again and the gate opened quickly. He was ejected through by the sheer pressure of people behind him and he heard the gate shut on a poor lady. The machine was beeping manically. Another wave of tuts fluttered. He was free. Now he had a choice. Take the ramp up to the station or down an adjacent ramp to the underground. After the ordeal he just experienced, William decided that he needed some air. 
It took the ramp up towards the main Euston terminal, and at the top of the ramp, it opened into a huge space with a couple of hundred people facing him in a line, not looking forward towards the platforms, but up. As he walked further in, he saw multiple screens suspended from big metal brackets showing the arrival and departures of trains. Every now and then, there would be 50 people suddenly scrambling towards the platforms, some dragging little cases and shouting the platform number, desperate for a seat, he guessed, only to be replaced by a trickle of another 50 or so that walked through the doors that led outside. He headed against the tide and towards the exit, sidestepping people whose whole attention was already stolen by the giant screens, while a busker in a mismatched suit played a heavily worn alto sax along to Ghost Town by the specials. Heading outside, the air was chilly and it wasn't helped by the cloud cover that seemed to drape over London like a blanket. He sat down on a bench outside, took out his drink bottle and breathed. London, from what he'd seen so far, was too fast, like a hamster on speed, clinging for dear life to its running wheel. Everyone in a hurry, so consumed by being first that they missed out on the calmness of sometimes allowing yourself to be last. Excuse me, sir, said a man in an oversized coat. I need your help. I've lost my wallet and I need some money to get home. Is there any chance you can spare some change, please? Judging by the state of his trainers and dirt on his face, he hadn't been home in a long time. Sure, said William, taken aback. He reached into his pocket for some change and producing a two-pound coin. Thank you very much, sir, he said. Have a great day, he added just like it was an everyday transaction. William half expected the man to ask him if he wanted a bag for his sense of self-satisfaction. As the man walked away, he wondered how many others like him were in London. Oldest profession in the world, begging, he remembered Grampy saying once. William checked his phone for the time and decided to message Jess to thank her again for the lift and say that he'd made it to London. As he did so, he could hear the beggar start his speech to another couple as they walked into the station. They didn't stop and walked straight past him without a look. Have a great day, he said to them with a twist of sarcasm and a pinch of salt. Some people. William got up from the bench and prepared himself for another charge. This time it was towards the London Underground Transport System, more affectionately known as the Tube. Nerdy fact. The Tube is a network of tunnels and overground sections that run on 250 miles of track, twisting across Greater London, serving 270 stations with around 5 million passengers every day. When it opened in January 1863, it was a world first. It was far smaller then, but has since grown into a goliath, pulmonary arteries that feed the thumping heart of the London metropolis known as Greater London. William followed the signs for the tube and found himself very quickly being ushered onto an escalator going down. Everybody that wasn't walking down was standing on the right, so he did the same, as if the escalator wasn't moving fast enough already, people were still running down the filleted steps on the left while the tube trains could be heard screeching and hissing in the tunnels nearby. William remembered what the man on the train had told him, so he followed the signs to the southbound or southbound northern line via bank. William's ticket wasn't valid anymore, as he'd only bought a return ticket to Euston, so he was now relying on his bank card to tap with. His overdraft was already getting a pasting this month, and this wouldn't help. The platforms were smaller and not as busy, which was a good thing. He even saw a few rats scurrying around, looking for food on the tracks. 
A distant noise and rush of air was being squeezed out of the tube on the left, and all of a sudden, the tube train appeared like red toothpaste all along the track, screeching to a stop at the end. All the curved doors opened with a... automatically, and people got off and on as the tannoy spouted inaudible announcements from battered speakers. William stayed standing by the doors. He had only had four stops to Moorgate. Didn't seem worth the hassle of trying to sit down. Mind the doors, please. Mind the doors, said the train driver over the internal distorted mic. The train doors shut, and they moved off with a jerk almost instantly. He didn't have time to hold on to anything, so he ended up flying sideways into the back of another man. Why, watch it, said the man angrily. If looks could kill, thought William. He was quite a tall man, in a long black raincoat. So tall, in fact, he clung onto the rail hanging from the roof with ease. The black stone in his signet ring glistened in the pale fluorescent light of the tube carriage. Oh no, not another one! So sorry, said William. And he turned to face the window so he couldn't see the look of the man's disgust anymore. William held on tightly while the carriage swayed through the bends trying to stay planted on his feet. The tube moved so fast it was scary. William felt uneasy, like the whole carriage was watching him as he stared out of the window. As they moved through the dark tunnel, he focused on the long runs of cable and equipment all strapped to the wall. How many of these people were Satanists? One was too many, as far as he was concerned. William had to be smart about this and not give the game away. Time to get off. The next station is Morgate. Please be sure to take all your belongings with you as you depart. 